Hello, and welcome to the Communication Solution Podcast with Casey Jackson and John Gilbert. I'm your host, Danielle Canton. Here at the Institute for Individual and Organizational Change, otherwise known as IFIOC, we love to talk about communication, we love to talk about solutions, and we love to talk about providing measurable results for individuals, organizations, and the communities they serve. Welcome to the communication solution that will change your world. Hi, everyone. I'm Danielle Canton with the Communication Solution Podcast. I'm here with Casey Jackson. How are you, Casey? Doing great. Awesome. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. We're really excited today to talk about a concept that is very near and dear to my heart and weave it into motivational interviewing. Um, Casey, on the, uh, one of our previous podcasts, uh, we talked about the Mint Forum. It's a conference, motivational interviewing network of trainers, international. Happens every year. You go. Um, and in that episode, you mentioned something that I'm very intrigued with. And I'd like to talk about hope. And you mentioned Dr. Miller uh, was talking about hope and the value of hope. I'd love if you could weave in that concept. Does it relate to motivational interviewing? Did he say that it relates to motivational interviewing and kind of help position hope within this construct um, for communicating? There's there's a lot to unpack with that. Um, So it's fascinating, just like the the conversation that you and John and I had had about the the book that Miller, Dr. William Miller and Dr. Teresa Moyers just published around or relatively recently published around um, the characteristics of the professional and how they impact outcomes. So that was not based in motivational interviewing. That was just like what produces positive outcomes. But when they, when they did the research and looked at seven years of data, 70 years of data of what, where were the outcomes the most positive in healthcare, mental health, substance use? What were the factors? It wasn't the model. It was the characteristics of the helping professional. So that wasn't motivational interviewing. But what Miller was talking about is when you look at the top five, the top five characteristics are the things that we teach and we train in motivational interviewing. So that was, so it's like, wow, now you can see where the data crosswalks. I think there's a similarity to, because now the next book that Miller's going to write and he's researching right now is around hope yeah. and the power of hope. So he's looking at all the data around that and he's he just presented his um, preliminary findings and he hasn't even started writing as much of the manuscript yet, but just still gathering data and starting to jot down notes. And it was fascinating. So like you had said before, you know, we can kind of get off on the woo woo side of, of hope and, you know, the human spirit and lean into that. And there's so much magic and potency and power to that. There were several things that he had talked about and, and, and I think that it's hard, you'd be hard pressed to be able to be highly skilled or proficient at motivational interviewing and not have more of an optimistic perspective. And, and optimism is just one of the qualities embedded in hope, um, that there's an optimism to hope. If you bridge it to the science, this was so fascinating to me. And this is where he was kind of chuckling about it. That for as maddening as it is to researchers, it is such a powerful reality, and that's placebo. Researchers just get and, and practitioners are just, it's it's just annoying that placebo effect has so much 
potency. (laughs) Because, you know, no matter what the issue is, if people think it's going to work or think that it could have potential to help, that is the power of the mind or the power of the brain. So even though you're just getting the sugar pill, you don't have as much pain as other people that didn't take that sugar pill because they think it's some magic medicine. That the placebo effect is real and you cannot escape the research that shows how effective placebo effect is. It's consistent and it's maddening because was, was Dr. Miller laughing at that too? Was oh yeah, that's what he's talking about. Scherzer and a scientist, he was laughing at the Yeah, it just kind of chuckled. It's like, you know, for as much as we get annoyed and we want to kind of dismiss placebo, the data keeps drawing us back to placebo effect. So placebo effect was partially what he was talking about in terms of a comprehensive assessment of hope, because placebo effect is rooted in the fact that people hope they could get better and they hope this pill or this intervention is going to make a difference. And their hope is so strong that their outcomes improve consistently with placebo effect. So you can't ignore that. Um, and then he talked more about the research around, he even shared a, a story that was, was pretty, I didn't know this history, but I knew about Mesmer, which is where hypnosis came from. And, and I can't remember his first name, but I think it was Joseph Mesmer, but I can't remember his actual name, but it's where mesmerized came from um, and hypnosis came from because he could take groups of people and magnetize them. And that would, and they would get healthier and they were getting better outcomes. And um, so, and it was kind of ticking off the king because it's like, this isn't, this isn't magic. Is he magic? Like what's going on? How can you just magnetize people and put them in a room and animal magnetism and all these things he's doing and people were, were feeling better and reporting better outcomes. And so what he did is he uh, paid a, a researcher, which happened to be Benjamin Franklin to, research this and find out is this true or not true and even <laughs> benjamin franklin was a little annoyed because he just he disproved that mesmer was being able to do the things that he said so he disproved mesmer but what he couldn't disprove is that the actual reported outcomes and the measurable outcomes were better so it's it was just which it just goes back to that placebo effect of people think they can get better or want to get better or believe they can get better and believe that you've given them something that will help them get better that has a, a dose effect that has an effect on people and that's that's rooted in health so so you look at some of the research just around placebo effect and that is based off the thing that people believe or want to believe strongly enough that this could help them that they physically or psychologically improve to some extent that's so interesting. That's, that's, that's rooted in a concept of hope. That's interesting to tie it to motivational interviewing from my perspective, which is definitely novice, right? It's 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 understanding that the people that get involved with training and teaching motivational interviewing are definitely, like you said, optimists and they have that hope. They have that belief, right? Isn't that a premise of motivational interviewing? You have a belief that that person can make a change, that that person... This- This is interesting. So this is a great thing to bring up, Danielle, because what we do measure, and again, I want to really build these bridges between what we measure and what we believe and what we embody. What we measure is how you support autonomy and try to activate a sense of self, a sense of self-efficacy, a sense of personal agency, which is going to be a Venn diagram laying over the top of hope as well, too. So self-efficacy and self-agency is not necessarily hope, but to activate it, there has to be on the MI practitioner's part, there has to be some belief that there's 
there's greatness inside this human being to unlock. There's potential to unlock. Um, and that the individual has the keys to unlock that. So that is a component of hope. So that's not a placebo effect. But when he was talking about the dimensionality of hope, that is one of the dimensions is can do when we look into someone, are we looking in there with the intention to see that there is a greatness that resides within there? That is a that's an aspect or a parallel to hope. They're called other things, but that these are all the dimensionalities of hope that, that Miller was starting to tease out. So, and what, the way I look at that immediately or crosswalk that is into, it's a variation of, or a, a striation of supporting autonomy and activating autonomy. Amazing. I think, I think, you know, you kind of growing up the way I have as an optimist, as somebody filled with hope, not to say I don't have my dark times or my, my times when I need others to help pick me up. Um, and I've had plenty of forks in the road. I thank God have always kind of look to the hope, the high road, right? Of, of hope. That's where I'm happiest. So that's my natural place to live. And I know it isn't for others. And so I get excited when it starts to be connected in science with, uh, you know, brilliant researchers and scientists, uh, like yourself, like Dr. Miller, um, that gets me excited because I can't help but think from a business mindset, right? So having worked with so many CEOs, um, part of what draws me to them is because they have that spirit of hope. They have that spirit of perseverance and all of those qualities I love. But when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, when they want to grow their business, you can't walk in a boardroom with investors and say, we've got hope. <laughs> like, and like, just sell on the hope piece. <laughs> So, so how do we how do we talk to the the professionals out there and the leaders who who know and believe yes they are aligned with what's possible and and so many of them are but now does this start giving us a tool to even further say here's the data and the backing and the research to actually help you through those conversations with investors or whoever you need from a scientific standpoint from a numbers standpoint to kind of get behind um, action, you know, putting into action the communication solution like this. You know, I, th I think there's two parts of it. One of it I think of is it's not that difficult. You don't have to dig deep to look at how positive outcomes are for businesses, for individuals, for our own mental health, our own emotional health. The more you look at people that are optimistic or, or embody hope and they operate from a place of hope, they do have healthier outcomes. They are more productive individuals. It just, and in some ways you can just step back and go that we don't need, do we really need research? I mean, we have research to reinforce that, but you step back and just think, well, if somebody's excited every day and hopeful, they're probably going to get more done than somebody that's depressed and doesn't want to do anything all day. Like it just, so from that perspective of just a hope or hopeless perspective, the level of health healing contribution is going to be greater from that perspective. What Miller did distinguish between, which was fascinating, is he also talked about false hope um, or blind hope, and that that can that that has caused death and destruction and wars that people were so hopeful and so believed blindly in a certain leader or a certain approach um, that they that people were massacred because you know they were so unprepared because they were so blindly hopeful that something was going to happen and they were just wildly unprepared for that. So hope doesn't actually, blind hope doesn't, it, it, hope is not the end all be all. It Just because you're armed with 
massive amounts of hope doesn't mean that every outcome is the way that it could be because blind hope can get in the way. So he talked about looking at probability and possibility. Um, if you're not looking at probability and possibility and you just have hope, that can just chew away at, at, at potential outcomes. Um, you have to, part of hope is probability. Things will probably go well. They, the possibilities, which these have metrics associated with possibility and probability. If we're going to roll the dice, um, there's probabilities and possibilities. Um, but I don't know if you'd, you know, stake your entire, you know, fortune on the roll of the dice either. Um, even if you are a hopeful person, um, those are the things that you start to, how do you mitigate, um, hope while you're still maximizing the potency of it, if that makes sense. It does, because I think that's what drew me to you. When I saw you on stage speaking, it was a senior living conference and me as a branding person, you know, I've been doing this for decades and branding is so deeply rooted in the culture of a company and it's intricately tied. So it's always challenging if I help a brand like the leader, the vision of the leader come to life. Um, the checkpoint really is operations, right? It's like, are we really walking the talk and, and living yes. this vision? Because that authenticity, yeah. you might get away with it for a minute, but it will will crumble. Um, yes. When I saw you, I was like, oh my God, out of all the tools out there to help operationalize um, culture, you know, yes. the specific culture the leader wants ingrained in the company. I was like, oh, that was when I was like, the whole world needs to know about what you do, what you're teaching here. <laughs> and and to me, it's just like the, the name of this episode is like, you know, the hope, the power of hope in business. It's just like, how do you actionalize hope? It's such a cool, a cool concept for me, a cool opportunity. Um, for so many, so many people. And I'm gearing this toward businesses, but for, I think any individual. You know, it's interesting you bring that up, Danielle, because it's, it's one of the things that in wanting to get the word out, because my, my charge in life, you know, my mission in life is just to help people live happier and healthier lives. And if I can make a career off of helping people have happier and healthier lives, like I'm, it will be a life well lived for me. And what I was trying to figure out, and it's, 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 it's exactly what you're talking about is I was seeing all these speakers that are inspirational speakers. I saw these people that were motivational speakers, which what people think motivational interviewing is, which it's not, it's not about <laughs> motivational. <interviews. You> <laughs> and I would see these companies, you know, because usually private nonprofit, you don't get to access that you usually can send people to a conference and hopefully there's somebody that's motivational or there or inspirational there, but corporations bring in these inspirational people or these motivational people. But what I, what I was able to observe in, in all of this is that just because you can inspire does not catalyze change because if, if you're not catalyzing change, people walk away inspired, but over the course, you will see that titrate over the course of days, weeks, or months that then they're back into status quo again. And so for me, I'm thinking, you know, you can invest in inspiration, which is there's nothing wrong with that fundamentally. But if you're not catalyzing that into changing your culture, it's just another good speaker who had a really, you know, intriguing story that we were glued to every word that they said, but it didn't catalyze change or a shift in our culture. And I think that people keep thinking that if you expose people to it, they will become that. 
And that's just not true. You, you can't just expose people to a great pianist. And now you're a great pianist. You can't expose them to a phenomenal athlete. And now you're a phenomenal athlete. You know, it, it, there is a, a formula of how do we catalyze this and move it into change. That for me is my obsession about fidelity-based motivational interviewing, because we know both the mindset that we can measure and the skill set that we can measure to help people shift and improve outcomes for themselves and other people. Now you take this inspiration or that motivation, and if you can catalyze that into cultural change within an organization, it's what I keep saying over and over and over again in terms of it is the mastery of aligning behavior with values and, and, and to providing a skill set for how to do that. And when you do that, and now I take a step back to hope and think, if you have a workforce that genuinely believes in the vision and they are being supported and affirmed for that, they are more hopeful. Who doesn't want to be part of an organization if you if you deeply believe in the vision? Who wouldn't want to be a missionary for that organization? And if you can see those outcomes improving, which makes you feel more hopeful, it makes you want to go to work every day. So that's not because you're inspiring. It's because you're creating change that aligns with vision. So this for me is why you can't separate hope from that but it's not about the hope in and of itself. But if you want your workforce to be able to move forward, feel stronger, if you as an individual professional just want to know at the end of the day, what I did, I know made a difference for another human being in a positive way. We can replicate that. We can learn that we can master that. And I, I, I get nervous because even on a training I was doing today, th- what people tend to continue to to be leery of is they keep having this fear response that there's something manipulative about motivational interviewing because it's so effective. And the only thing that's that effective with another human being means you have to be manipulating them. And it's just, I just feel like every day I'm trying to help people understand there is nothing manipulative about fidelity-based motivational interviewing. Which is why you go but at I, it from attention, right? You always start with the attention of the... Because so many people train it as a, as a manipulative tool that... How do you use MI to get them to take their medication? How do you get them to, um, how do you use motivation to get them to not commit another crime? How do you use motivation to get them to do this? And it's like, well, what you're talking about is not motivational interviewing. You know, one of the things that came out, um, I was, uh, I'm getting worked up. (laughs) (laughs) They came out at the conference and I had my moment of frustration, um, because I was in a, a breakout on ethical application, ethical and moral application of motivational interviewing, which of course I am, that's a breakout I want to go to. And I was getting frustrated. Um, and this is where I think, am I just missing the point? Am I just on my own Casey Jackson track or, you know, or is it just that, okay, you're seeing things from a different way that really, this is a, a healthier way to look at it because one of the, what came up in this, uh, presentation, which becomes an open dialogue at a certain point in most of these, was one person was talking from a different country was talking about how he was hired to train um, interrogators uh, on how to use motivational interviewing. And so he's asking, they were talking about, is that an ethical application of, or uh, motivational interviewing? Um, And his rationale was, but if 
we're getting um, confessions from people that will prevent a war crime from happening. We're sacrificing the one for the good of the whole. And for me, that's a conflation of the issues. And that's where I start getting frustrated because like, okay, now we're conflating two different things because if you're using it to interrogate someone, it's not motivational interviewing. And what the speaker was saying is, no, that's not an ethical application of motivational interviewing. And I said, so if you listen to that tape, because this presenter was somebody that actually codes motivational interviewing using the mighty. And I said, so if you code it, will it score as motivational interviewing? And she said, well, no, it's going to score low in the spirit of MI. And I said, if it scores low in the spirit of MI, it will not score as motivational interviewing, which means it's not motivational interviewing. Does that make sense when I say that, Danielle? Uh, 100% does, and you're getting me riled up. (laughs) you're You're trying to get, you already claimed the result, and you're trying to use motivational interviewing to get that result. It's exactly. And this is, and this continued to be a theme of, well, I use it in this way. And this is how I've been able to navigate using motivation to get people to do what I need them to do. And I raised my hand again and said, if we're trying to get people to do what we want them to do, that won't score as motivational interviewing. It means you will be using reflective listening, open-ended questions, maybe even strategically responding to language, but you are not going to score high in the intentions on the mica or in the spirit using the mighty. So if you're not scoring in motivational range, it's not motivational. It's not motivational interviewing. So this is where I was maddening. And so finally, the analogy that I came up with, because you know, my brain, I, I did my brain works in pictures. So what I told them is where I'm getting frustrated is what it sounds like. This is where my brain was at with it and how I explained it to people afterwards. who were asking me what I was talking about is it feels like the conversation is, is it okay to use a ripe or an unripe plum when we're making our apple pie? And I'm like, um, it doesn't matter because you don't use plums in your apple pie. And they're like, I know, but we're using, but we're using an, should we use a ripe or an unripe plum in our apple pie? And it's like, yeah, that's not an apple pie. Uh, we only use apples in apple pie. Jason, I know. They, they, I might, plum. They, they might be like me because I'm sitting here. I don't cook or bake. So I was like, I do know there's a plum in an apple pie. <laughs> Because there's not, because that would be an apple plum pie, or it would be a plum pie, but it wouldn't be an apple pie. And and this is where I just get, I think this is my obsession, ironically, as a clinical social worker, that I'm so obsessed with fidelity, because I, I'd normally be on the other side arguing a different point. But since I believe so strongly in fidelity, you only put apples in apple pies. Yeah, I know, but I use, because we only have unripe plums, it's just like, that's what I use. It's like, which is fine. It's probably an amazing plum pie or a plum pudding, but it's just not apple pie. So let's not say that, well, this is a variation of apple pie when you're not using apple pie recipe. And that's how I have to go back to my brain. So simple that way. That's like, I need to just keep it simple in my brain because all these applications that people are talking about ethical or unethical application of MI, I'm going, those will not score as motivational interviewing because it's not supporting autonomy. It's not trying to expand the person's sense of control. You're not partnering to get to their best outcome, which means in the MICA, it will not score as motivational interviewing, no matter how nice, no matter, you could do you could do everything out of your mouth, could be a reflective statement from the beginning to the end, and that does not make it motivational interviewing. That just makes it a lot of reflective listening. And I think people keep conflating these concepts, and I keep trying to go, I'm not 
we need to be clear what are we talking about. And this is why I think it's so important when we're talking about hope in that same vein. Yeah. And the way my brain translates this too, because it's fascinating about interrogation, you got me a, gave me a lot to think about there because I know that um, hostage, hostage negotiators, you know, call you in for, for help and support in that realm. I know where I met you was senior living and you had to, to work through your own ethical issues of like, oh, okay, am I going to help all of these companies that want me to, you know, the two areas I see you working in is sales training, right? So, or human resources within predominantly within a company. And for the sales piece, what was really important to you around this topic of what happened with the interrogation um, conversation is that the leaders in the organization has to be fully committed to MI in terms of allowing in senior living, for example, a prospect looking to move into the community. You have to be willing to help them come to their best conclusion for themselves, not not the end game is they must move into our place. And so that was where you were like, oh, I, I don't know if we can go down this route how many years ago. And then you realized, oh, there are companies really willing to do that, to really put their, their uh, walk their talk, uh, to put their money where their mouth is and just say, yes, let's help people through one of the most difficult decision points and points of change in their life, whatever the outcome and then they see the result, you know, obviously the results are there that that their occupancy always increases. But but it's really interesting because you are committed to whoever you're working with that they be aligned with that. That message. Well, that, the intention. Absolutely. And the thing that I'm the most committed to is not bastardizing what motivational thing is. I think that that's where I get so frustrated is that I hear people saying they've implied or they, you know, we'll use MI in our agency or we use it in our organization. And then I watch the interactions and I'm like, well, this is an MI. And th th again, that same analogy, because I always use that kind of grandma's recipe analogy for fidelity is, you know, when you hand me, a, you know, a graham cracker with some chocolate chips melted on the graham cracker and I take a bite of it and they're saying, yeah, this is grandma's chocolate chip cookie recipe. And it's like, no, that's not. It's a graham cracker with melted chocolate chips on it. It doesn't even taste like what I know, but this is how we do motivational interviewing. It's like, well, that's not motivational link because motivational link tastes like a very specific hot out of the oven chocolate chip cookie that your grandmother makes. Like that's a very specific recipe. So when you hand me a graham cracker with some chocolate chips melted on it and I take a bite of it, I'm going, well, this is an MI. The response where you say, no, it is MI. It's just our version of it. It's like, well, no, because MI is this very specific recipe that is measured this specific way. But motivational link is such a catchphrase because there's so much funding that's offered around it that right. people want to say that they've been through MI training and we use MI in our organization, but we have to use it this way because of our population. And it's like, to me, that's there's a gap in the training and understanding of what motivation really is then. And then um, the, the harm starts coming in when the data doesn't prove it out. And it's just like, exactly. oh, you didn't get the outcome and the results that are amazing that, that you're used to seeing. If somebody doesn't do that, you know where to look. It's like, mm, I don't think you really implemented motivational interviewing because the, the evidence-based research is there that it works. Daniel, that is right on. The, that's exactly it. Because when the data doesn't bear it out and then it just it just causes a writing reflex. Maybe then I hear, well, we used MI and it doesn't work with our population. I'm like, I know it works with your population. You may not be using MI. And usually what it comes down to is they're trained on good communication skills, great communication skills. 
um, you know, reflective listening, open-ended questions, but that doesn't make it grandma's recipe motivational, motivational learning, which is why I always use that same analogy with cooking is, yeah, there's all sorts of recipes that use flour and show you how to whip the butter and when to add the sugar in and when you add the vanilla in. That's the basis for a thousand different baking recipes. But those thousand recipes taste completely different because from there, which one, which recipe are you using? If you're using grandma's recipe for motivational learning, it will taste the same every single time and you'll get the outcomes associated with it every single time. So it shouldn't taste like a graham cracker with some chocolate chips melted on it. That's not what they're interviewing, you know? Now, you've, has all the- now you've expanded your stories to plum pies. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's when it's like, well, I used MI this way. So was that nothing? And it's like, well, we're, that's not motivational interviewing. And, and people are really struggling with that in the, in the breakout going, well, no, this, because I use it that way too. And it's just like, and then I'm just like, oh, I'm in a, you know, I'm in a, a rabbit hole that's going to be hard for me to get out of in my own brain because it's like, yeah, I, those, the, if it's not measuring as motivational interviewing, it's not motivational interviewing. Yeah. Wow. What a winding road of hope we just went on. <laughs> so fun. So gosh, I could talk yeah. to you, Casey. Um, I love this stuff. I think, uh, you know, catalyzing hope is a, a very intriguing, compelling topic that I'm excited to get this out there because it is available. So anybody, all of you listeners out there, if you want to catalyze hope and prove it and back it up, <laughs> reach out yeah. and we you find a way. Um, but any, any last words you'd like to share about, about this topic, Casey? The, the one thing I'd say is just the, um, you know, I've said this so many times in so many of the podcasts, but this podcast is 100% about you. Those of you that listen, um, and I've ran into a couple of people that said, Hey, I listen to your podcast and I've invited them on. And so they're, they're going to be coming on. If there is, if you ever want to have a conversation about motivational being and you're a listener and there's a question that you have, or you're like, Oh no, I couldn't do that. Or I'm not, these are the things that I hear from people. I'm like, this is the only reason I do it is not to hear myself talk. The reason I do this is because I want people like you to jump into the conversation with me and pick my brain and, and stretch my brain and, and talk about things that you're the most interested in. So it's just another time that I'm going to keep throwing those invitations out there, you know, to reach out to us and just say, Hey, I've got some things. Could I be on the podcast? I can tell you that more often than not, the answer is going to be, yes, I want you to, that's, I want, I want to hear what your thoughts are. And if you disagree with me, that's totally fine. Like this is a, a chance and a space for people that are interested in these topics to really be able to dive deeper into it and really, you know, flesh it out and see what, where does this fit in my life? And, and can this help me be who I want to be professionally or personally? So, yeah, I just want to keep putting that invitation out there to, to, to anybody that's listening to the podcast. Awesome. I appreciate you so much, Casey, and all the listeners. We appreciate you beyond measure. It's incredible. Thanks sure for, for trying to be that change in the world and actually doing it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see you thank next you, time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Communication Solution Podcast with Casey Jackson and John Gilbert. As always, this podcast is about empowering you on your journey to change the world. So if you have questions, suggestions, or ideas, send them our way at Casey at IFIOC.com. That's C-A-S-E-Y at IFIOC.com. For more information or to schedule a training, visit IFIOC.com. Until our next communication solution podcast, keep changing the world.